Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, please. I'll meet you there in just a little bit, and we'll share some verses together. Have you ever thought about all of the different words that can be used to describe a person? Now, naturally, what word we use depends on what it's used in relation to. For example, uh, for the parent, uh, you would be a child. That, that would identify you in relationship to your parent. Uh, if you're a child, uh, you know, it would be, you know, mom or dad. That would be the relation. If you're speaking about a spouse, then you're talking about a husband or a wife. If it's someone that is very close acquaintance, it might be that you would identify them as this is my friend, or you would be known as a friend to someone in that case. If we're speaking in regards to our community, we might be called a neighbor. If we're speaking in regards to our country, we would be called a citizen. If you speak in regards to the family doctor, why, you you are a patient. In regards to the merchant, you are a customer. In regards to your employer, you are an employee. What about when it comes to what you are in relation to God? And there's only one word that comes to mind to describe the natural person, and that's sinner. That sinner, that whether you like it or not, whether you agree or not, that is the one word that identifies all of us around the world what we are by nature as related to God. But let me ask this question, what about self? What about you? What word describes you? Well, somebody might say the word rich would describe me because I've got lots of money. Somebody else might say, well, uh, the word poor best describes me because I don't have any. Someone else might say, well, I'm black. And another person might say, well, I'm white. And somebody might say, well, I'm a Democrat. (laughs) If they've got the guts. Someone else might say, I'm a Republican. (laughs) I knew I'd get an amen. But for the natural man, there's just one word that leaps out at me when I think about this. One word that can describe everybody as related to self. And that word's empty. Empty. That describes everyone until they come to Christ. The Bible says that the natural man is spiritually dead, which means they're separated from God. You know, we hear a lot of talk about the high life, and a lot of talk about the low life, and we hear a lot of talk about the good life. But I want to talk to you this morning about the empty life. And here in Ecclesiastes, there is no better place in all of the Bible to talk about this than the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse number 1, chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now look at verse number 12. I, the preacher, was king over all Israel in Jerusalem. I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Again, I say, if we could only use one word to describe the unbeliever based on what we've just read, that word would be empty. And I I want you to understand the reality of what I'm talking about, the reality of emptiness. And, And we can see that in at least three different ways. For one thing, I think we see that because it's confirmed by testimonies, what what others have said. Mark Twain was a famous writer and uh, I might say well thought of, but he was sure mixed up on a lot of things. Mark Twain made this statement. He said, God doesn't know we are here and he wouldn't care if he did. So that's what Mark Twain thought about God. That tells me God certainly not in his life. Robert Ingersoll, the famous infidel, described human existence as, and I quote, a narrow veil between the cold, barren peaks of two eternities. Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychologist, said, the central neurosis of our time is emptiness. Professor W.T. Stace of Princeton University said, I quote, It is the essence of the modern mind that the universe is meaningless and purposeless. Several years ago, Dr. Dana Farnsworth was at a meeting of the American Medical Association, and he made this statement, and I've used it over and over again, because it's the same today as it was when he made the statement. He said, the great sickness of our age is aimlessness, boredom, and lack of meaning and purpose in living. Now, I haven't quoted these men because I agree with them, their various beliefs, because I don't. I simply want to use these quotations to show you that this is the attitude of the world, this is the confession of the world, as it were, that people are empty. There's nothing fulfilling, nothing that satisfies. And as Farnsworth said, the great sickness of our age is aimlessness, boredom, lack of meaning and purpose. But not only do I see the reality of emptiness as it is confirmed by these testimonies and many more that could be given, I also comprehend it by observation. By that I mean even a casual look around, just observing people that we know. It becomes very obvious that 
most people are living empty lives today. After all, we live in the most affluent society on the face of the earth, and still we are bored, we are restless, we are miserable. You, you just can't hardly make people happy today here in, in America, where we have so much. And so as I look around, as I just observe my neighbor, my friends, and even some of my family, I, I see the emptiness that, that's in their life. And it's obvious that something is wrong. And you see, this is common to all, because if I could expand the horizon, and if I could reach out to the four corners of the earth, if I could embrace every religion as it were known to man and gather it all together, you would see this one thing is common to everyone without Christ, that their lives are empty. So there's no need for us to argue about the reality of this statement. And this is what Solomon is saying. Solomon had searched the world over Solomon from his position of authority with all of his money. Everything he had conducted what is called an experiment. And he's going to try this, and he's going to try that, and we see that in chapter number 2. He tried wine, he tried works, he tried women, he tried wealth, he tried everything under the sun, trying to find something, and he just rolled it all up into one ball of wax and said it's all vanity, it's nothingness, it's a soap bubble world that we live in. That's the reality. But what are the results of an empty life? Because there are consequences to such a life. What's the result of this? Well, first of all, there is the purposelessness in our life. That we, we exist, but we don't have a purpose. We don't have a sense of, you know, why we're here. And we have these educational institutions all across the land, you know, supposedly where we can get the finest education of anyone in all of the world. We have sophisticated means of communication where just with the push of a button, or you don't have to use the button, you can just speak to that little square box you hold in your hand, and automatically it'll tell you, tell you where you are, and uh, you can get a map, you can get a we- the weather, you can get just almost any information imaginable uh, from a cell phone. And we have all of these other inventions that make life easier for us. I- I'm always amused by these these posts on Facebook that, you know, says, are you old enough to remember this? And and maybe it's... <laughs> Nolan's laughing because he put some of those on there. And uh, you know, the other day somebody had a picture of an old ringer washing machine, you know. And, and, you know, most of the kids nowadays, they wouldn't have any idea what a contraption like that was. But uh, But some of you do. Some of you have been around that long. But we've got all of these modern inventions that make life so much easier today. And, and even with all of them, we've got wonder drugs that's, you know, able to help us through terrible times of sickness and so on and so forth. And yet with all of this, something's missing. There's just something missing. There's not that sense of purpose. There's not that peace that comes from knowing why we're here upon this earth. I am so glad when I wake up in the morning, I don't have to wonder why I'm here. I know exactly my purpose on earth. 
And when we lose that sense of purpose, look, that's the thing that motivates us and keeps us going. I don't understand Christians talking about, oh, I'm just bored. I'm just bored. That doesn't make sense. I'm telling you, it doesn't make sense. We're all the time looking for something that's going to make us happy. Let me tell you, if you have to move one inch away from where you are to be happy, there's something wrong in your heart. Now, naturally, there are things that we all enjoy, right? And some of those things, you might want to go on a vacation and, you know, you might want to cross the ocean and you might want to do a lot of things like that. And, you know, that's well and good. And you would enjoy that. That's not what, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you've got to leave where you are to be happy, there's something wrong. Because in Christ we find everything that we need to give us satisfaction to endure anything we face, regardless of what it is. But when your life is empty, there's no purpose there. Not only that, it brings pain. You notice he said all is vanity, but then he used the word vexation. It's not only vanity, and, and that word there implies that there is strife involved, striving after, longing for. That's, that's the point of the word there. Always longing for, reaching out, trying to, you know, to get more than what we've got. You know, we dream big and we reach for it and reach for it and we can't quite get it. And that brings pain into our life, pain and misery. But if it stopped right there, it wouldn't be quite so bad because so far all we've done is make ourselves miserable, right? We're inflicting ourselves with pain because our life is empty. But when you read on, you see that that it leads to perverseness. Look at verse number 10 of chapter 2. And notice what Solomon said. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not from my heart, from my heart, any joy from my, for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor. And this was my portion of all of my labor. I mean, he's living at full speed, full throttle, full blast. He said, anything I saw, I wanted, I got. Have you, you know, have you ever envisioned what it would be like to like win one of those lotteries, you know, where they come knocking on the door and, uh, and say, you've won five million dollars or something like that? I, Bev and I have joked about it and we, you know, we've talked about what we would do you know, for each one of the kids and things like that. And it'd be fun, right? I mean, who wouldn't enjoy that? Solomon tried that. He said, everything my eyes saw that I wanted, I got. I, I just, you know, I, he had long arms and reached out, as it were, as far as he could and brought it all in. You see, here's what happens when a person doesn't have any sure standard of right and wrong. And if you read these verses, you'll see, as I said, he tried wine, women, song, everything under the sun, right or wrong. He tried it all, hoping that it would bring some satisfaction to his life. And when we don't have that standard of right and wrong, when we don't understand where we came from and why we're here or where we're going, we're going to go astray. 
And the thing about sin is that it never satisfies. It keeps leading us further and further away, deeper and deeper into sin. I'm sure that most of you, especially if you're my age, you've wondered to yourself, how in the world did we get to this place in our society that homosexuality is acceptable among so many people? How did we ever get here? Because back in my childhood, nobody even talked about anything like that. I didn't know anyone like that. You know, and even if you were aware of it, you, you didn't talk about it. How did we get here? And, and, and by the way, if it wasn't for having these children here, I could go on and carry this illustration out further and further and further into some real sick, vile, filthy stuff that could be mentioned. How does man get to that place that that is acceptable in his sight? It's because sin never satisfies the fling, the uh, adulterous relationship. Oh, for a while you meet, you know, in a motel room somewhere, and boy, for a while that seems to be the ticket to making you happy, but after a while it's back to boredom. And it just goes on and on, and you've got to try the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And And you spend your entire life going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and never, never satisfied. You see, that's one of the results of having an empty life. Because it's going to get filled with something. Perverseness. But then that leads to pretense. You know, we talk about the hypocrites, and the hypocrite is someone that pretends to be something they're not. A hypocrite, you know, back in our Lord's day was somebody like a, an actor in one of the Greek plays that played, you know, two different parts. They'd put on a mask and come out as one character, go back behind the, back behind the curtain and come back out as another character, and they're playing all of these different parts. And isn't it amazing that all around the world we have all of these different religions, you know? You, you, you know what people are doing? They're just play acting. That's all that is, because there's no satisfaction in religion whatsoever. Pretense. Pretending that our life is fulfilled. Pretending that we're happy. And if the truth is known, there are people right here in this building at this very moment. And you want everyone to think, look, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that you're not going to heaven. I'm saying that you have so cluttered up your life and you have drifted so far away from God that you are absolutely miserable. It's like I've said so many times, the most miserable people in the world are not unsafe people. They don't, you know, they're not nearly as miserable as a child of God out of the will of God. Nobody is more miserable than a backslider, and that's why the Bible says the backslider shall be in heart, shall be filled with his own ways. You know what that means? It means his sin will make him sick. His sin becomes his his punishment for what he's doing. Sin has a built-in punishment. The sin itself becomes the punishment. And a person is never satisfied. And they go through life pretending 
that all is well. Well, naturally, that brings us to the question as to the reason for this emptiness. Why are we like we are? For one thing, we could describe it as the the result of living life on a horizontal plane instead of a vertical plane. Now, follow with me. And you'll notice that again and again, Solomon uses that phrase, under the sun. He's describing life on the earth. Not above the earth, but life on the earth. Under the sun. And, and, and notice as he reaches out seeking things for satisfaction, it has to do with things that are of this world, not things of the next world. Not things above like Paul tells us to do, remember? Set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. Solomon said his affection on things of this earth, things that are under the sun. He's living his life on a horizontal plane instead of a vertical plane. In other words, he is looking around instead of looking up. And his focus should have been on God. And he said, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that satisfies. He becomes so miserable. Life becomes so painful that here, this man with all of this money and all of this power, able to do anything he wanted to do, he said, I hated life. I hated life. Uh, This guy's reached the end of his rope. He has everything that you think will make you happy, and none of it satisfied. He's just as miserable, maybe more so, than he was on day one of his journey. You see, the reason for all of this is the fact that man is not meant to live apart from God. That That was never God's plan. Whenever we think of the original creation and God looked upon all that He made and after He made the, made the woman, He said, it's all very good. You ladies ought to mark that verse. It's all good until she got here and then He looked at it and He said, now it's very good. It's very good. Think about that. Being there in the paradise of God, in perfect harmony with God, and, and the ground just brings forth of its own. I mean, it's just natural and there are no thorns, there are no briars. Everything is flourishing until sin entered into the world. And what happened? When sin entered, they become fearful and they hid from God. And so the Lord comes along in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where art thou? When a God's not ignorant, God knew exactly where they were. God's not looking for to find out where He is. God knows where He's at. But Adam doesn't know where He's at. That's the problem. And He says, Adam, where art thou? Trying to get Adam to recognize the fact, what are you doing? You are hiding from me instead of being in fellowship with me. And that is exactly what so many people are doing today, trying to live their life apart from God. They don't want God ruling over them. They don't want God lecturing them. They don't want God, you know, giving them requirements and restrictions and all of those things. You know, they want to live life as they please. But they're never pleased. You see, they're not pleased because they're trying to live out of their element. The birds live in the air, the fish live in the water, 
And the only proper element for man is to live, as it were, in the presence of God. And anything short of that is going to be an unfulfilled life. You can pamper your body. You can educate your mind. You can entertain yourself with everything known to man. But you can't do anything to get satisfaction in your spirit apart from God. And if you're here this morning and your life it's empty, it's boring, it's... It, it's uh, uh, you got the Monday morning blues seven days a week. You just don't enjoy anything in life. And by the way, that describes the majority of the human race. Probably more people than you realize right here in this service this morning. The answer for your dilemma is God. And that brings us to the remedy. You see, the reason for a man's remedy is clearly spelled out in the Bible, but there's one verse in particular that that's all we really need. Over in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 2 and verse 12, Paul describes the sinner's state like this. He says, and this is true of every unsaved person, whether they're 8 or 80, rich or poor, black or white, He says, they are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now get this, having no hope and without God in the world. I'm telling you folks, it doesn't get any worse than that. You know, we feel sorry for people that's got cancer and heart disease and all of these other illnesses. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're not saved, you're worse off than they are. You have a spiritual disease called sin, and it's not going to just destroy your body. It'll destroy your body, soul, and spirit for all of eternity. And Paul describes the state of the sinner by saying they're without hope and without God, but the great thing is the very next verse, verse 12. Notice what it says. But now, thank God for that. But now in Christ Jesus, not in the church, not in the baptismal waters, not in giving great sums of money, not in good works, but now in Christ Jesus, Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh. That is, you are brought near, as it were, notice, by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah, there is a remedy for sin. Rebels against God can be reconciled to God because of the redemption that Jesus Christ Provides, And here's the great thing. The Lord not only saves us, He satisfies us. There in John chapter number 4, and the woman at the well, and you'll remember what He said to her. He said, you know, you go to that well and drink and you'll get thirsty again, but the, the person that drinks from the well I give him shall never thirst again. And then in chapter 5, He spoke about being the bread of heaven. He said, if you eat of this bread, you'll never, you'll never hunger again. If you'll drink of this water, I am the living water, and you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. 
And to this day, I don't understand for the life of me those that you ask them if they're saved or not. They well, I think so. I hope so. I used to be or something like that. And I've got to tell you, and look, this is not this is not due to me. It's not due to the fact that I had any intellectual superiority or anything else. I mean, I was just a dumb sinner when I got saved, and I'm just a dumb sinner that's been saved now. But I look back, and I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible. But I believed what it said about being a sinner because I knew I was. I believed what it said about Jesus Christ dying for my sins. I believed what the Bible said about that if I'll trust Him, that He'll save me. And I put my faith in Him, and I just started believing that He would save me. And I've never doubted it for a second. In other words, I've been satisfied from that very day. I don't need to be saved again. I sure haven't lived a perfect life, but, you know, it might hinder my fellowship with God, but it never breaks my relationship with Him. So we're talking about the, the security and the satisfaction that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, we've been talking about all of these words that could be used to describe us. You know, the child-parent relationship, the husband-wife relationship. We've talked about all of that. What about Jesus? You know, we've talked about the fact that in God's sight, the one word that describes you and I, the one word is sinner. That describes, that describes what we are in relationship to God. In relationship to self, we have to say empty. I've got to tell you, I'm not quite sure exactly what word, what one word I might use to describe Jesus other than Jesus. That kind of says it all. And you know, I'm not the only one to have that problem. The Apostle Paul himself, if you read his writings, here's what you discover. Paul believed in a superlative Savior. And he uses one superlative after another trying to describe Christ and the blessings of Christ. And that's why that we can say when we're speaking of the salvation He provides that He gives us life. But, wait a minute, that's not the end of it. He gives us a life, but it's abundant. He gives us joy, but it's unspeakable and it's full of glory. He gives us peace. But it passeth all understanding. He gives us love, but it passeth knowledge. He gives us hope, but it's steadfast and sure. He gives us promises, but they're exceeding great and precious. He gives us an inheritance, but it's an inheritance that fadeth not away. And then he really tried to sum it all up, and he just had to say, Whew, I have not seen, neither have ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things God prepared for those who love Him. There's no way to describe it. Knowing that you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Think of, let that sink in for a little while. A joint heir with Jesus. If Kenneth and I are joint heirs, you know, and somebody died and left $10 million, you know, he's, he'll get five and I'll get five. Right? I mean, joint heirs. We're going to divide it up the same, right? Think about being a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and entering into the fullness of the inheritance. That's why the old-timey preachers, back when I started out, they, they spoke about Jesus quite often as the elder brother. Our elder brother. You don't hear that anymore. Our elder brother. And he is because we are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, and it might be that that rock band still looking for satisfaction, but I found mine a long, long time ago. And there's another old song. A friend of mine used to sing that the group from the college up in Cincinnati that I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. Jesus will fill that longing that's in your heart. There's no reason for anyone to leave here living an empty life. He is more than able and willing to fulfill that void in your heart. Somebody said there's a God-shaped void in the heart of every man that only God can fill. That's a good way to describe it, I think. There's something there within man that nobody but God can fill. Don't leave here today living a life without purpose and meaning, living a life where there's no satisfaction. Finally, 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 after that search, Solomon finally came to his senses and he realized this is the whole duty of man to fear God and keep His commandments. And In other words, he finally discovered the fact that God's what I've been looking for all of this time. That's, that's exactly what your heart's searching for this morning. Let's stand. Father, speak to us by Your Spirit and through Your Word today. And Heavenly Father, I, I don't know what's on the heart of these folks, but I know there's a reason you laid this message on my heart. And Lord, today I just pray for those that are living empty, aimless lives. And they're bored and they're sick and tired with it. And God, today I pray you'll help them to make that wonderful discovery of Christ as their Savior. Or it might be that that one of your children has gone astray. And out out there in that far country, as it were, living on the pig slop of the world, rather than sitting down at the banquet table and enjoying a feast with their father. And I just pray you'll draw them back into fellowship with yourself here this morning. Accomplish your will and use everything we do for your glory, because we beg it in Jesus' dear name. While we...